it seemed like Terrence Crutcher was on trial. But Terrence Crutcher was the murdered victim, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Down, like, how could he be on trial? Went home and I wrote a piece talking about like who's on trial. Like I remember I was in class the next day out of nowhere, like it was, the principal came running in, a, uh, running into my classroom. And he said, uh, Mr. Frank, they need you at the courthouse. Man, the principal took over my class. And then the next thing you know, I was speaking in front of like national media. Dr. Crutcher was like, I need you to speak in front of these national media and tell them what you saw. The Woody Guthrie Center and Bob Dylan Center present Fire in Little Africa, a multimedia hip hop project inspired by Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You are now tuned in to Fireside with Dr. View, a podcast featuring FILA Executive Director Stevie Dr. View Johnson in conversation with national leaders in activism, academia, and culture centered on the movement behind the Fire in Little Africa music. And now, coming at you live from Black Wall Street, here is your host, Dr. View. What's good, y'all? It's your man, Dr. View, executive producer of Fire in Little Africa. And on episode five of Fireside, I had the pleasure of sitting down with the founder and editor-in-chief of the Black Wall Street Times, Mr. Nehemiah Frank. Uh, Nehemiah is a dynamic writer, historian, activist, and just lover of Black people who really try to set the record straight on the matters that are happening in Tulsa from the case for reparations to um, the centennial events that are happening to also the Centennial Commission and folks who should not be on the Centennial Commission. And so we just had a really beautiful and dynamic conversation. And I really hope you all will enjoy it and share it with as many people as possible. Again, this is Fireside with Dr. Few. Everything is us. Much love from the North Side. Thank you again for being on the podcast. I've been I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. You truly are upholding the the flame that AJ Smithman started, um, as well as others. But I just truly appreciate your approach to blackness, your approach to love, and I think a lot of times people people don't realize how much it takes to love somebody every day. Like you have to like them, you have to love them, but you also have to hold them accountable. And I think a lot of times people don't understand or are insecure about what love is because they just see you as an individual who's always critiquing things or critiquing them or critiquing them in a system that they know they're a part of, that they're guilty of. And so um, I'm just truly grateful to have, you know, the founder, editor-in-chief, the Black Wall Street Times is my next fireside uh, guest, um, none other than the great Nehemiah Frank. Um, I've just truly just appreciated your support of Fire in Little Africa, your support of me, um, and the ability just to navigate so many different areas and just really, really hold people accountable. So I'm just really wanted to say thank you again, but. Um, more than anything, you you truly represent what Fire Little Africa means to me. Um, when I when I was thinking about this project and just really bringing people together, um, so yeah, just welcome to the welcome to the podcast, welcome to the show, and uh, we're just gonna get gonna get right into it. Um, if you had to have a conversation with the ancestors right now, or if you had to provide them with an update, an assessment of the centennial, the things leading up to the centennial, 
Um, it's how you're feeling, things are moving. Um, what would be your overall thoughts of just, as we prepare for the Centennial Legacy Fest, you know, what are your thoughts about everything that's happening uh, here in Tulsa, the good, the bad, the ugly? What, what would you tell the ancestors uh, in your own words? Yeah, so I would tell the ancestors that, uh, you know, we're still in this 100 year war against white supremacy because that's what's happening. We got a House bill, uh, 1775, that's sitting on the governor's desk right now that would you know, make it illegal for teachers to feel comfortable teaching what happened in 1921, you know, or about Jim Crow, or about you know, redlining and systemic racism, about uh, slavery. And that is, you know, that's the fabric of, of this country, how this country came to be. And so I would tell them that you know, we are still in a 100th year war, uh, but we still have descendants that are fighting for justice for them today, like Dr. Crutcher, Greg Robinson, Demario Solomon Simmons, Christy uh, Williams, Chief, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and so that's what I would tell them. So just let's just go back, you know, some years back. How did, how did you even get to Tulsa? Like what, what, what brought you to Tulsa? Yeah, just, just talk about your, your background. Obviously you, you've been an educator uh, in the past as well. So in relation to the Centennial, this house bill, the things that you know we need to be talking about in the classrooms or just in society, just, just take a step back and just guide me on just your educational process, your love for blackness, black people, black history, where did it all come from? From education, from family, just talk about that. Yeah, so I'll say my love for black people, uh, it came from, from my mother, I would say. She was always trying to make sure that I knew that we were, that we uh, were, are more than just enslaved people that were here, like that our history starts before America. Um, she taught me how to research my, uh, my lineage through Ancestry.com and, you know, through uh, universities. Um, but as far as like my, uh, my lineage, um, I, I came back to Tulsa in 20, when I was 29 years old, 37 now. Um, and I think actually, I think I came back when I was like 26. I was probably a little bit late 20s. Let's just say that I came back in my late 20s. My, my stepdad was in the military. We went all across the country. I learned about different people and um, different cultures, different languages. And I think that, you know, kind of opened up my world perspective, but Tulsa was always home. So I would always come back and visit my grandparents, my extended family members here during the summertime, during the holidays. On my dad's side, he passed a few years ago, but on my dad's side, uh, his last name is Cherry. And so the Cherry family history, that dates uh, pre-massacre. They've been here, you know, before the massacre took place. So they had businesses uh, and homes and property that was damaged during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, and my dad's uh, grandmother, Gertrude, uh, her, her maiden name is uh, Clark. And so the Clarks also own businesses and homes. Uh, in Black Wall Street that were destroyed uh, during the massacre. And I didn't know this history until I was older when I was in college. I remember I was sitting on the south side of Chicago 
uh, at Trinity United Church of Christ. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of Trinity, but that's the church uh, that the Obamas used to go to and some other folks common goes there now. Um, and so Dr. Jeremiah Wright, he wasn't the pastor at the time, but he had, came, he had come back to visit. Uh, and he just so happened to be giving uh, a speech about uh, Black Wall Street. And the crazy thing is, is that he said, everybody turn to the book of Nehemiah. And I was <laughs> I'm like, God is really messing with me today. Yeah. Like, okay, well, I better be paying attention to this lesson because he talked about Nehemiah. So, and every time he would mention the book, everyone in the church would like look at me because they knew my name was Nehemiah and they would like kind of smirk and giggle and stuff. Yeah. Um, Dr. Jeremiah Wright, you know, he was preaching about the black excellence of Black Wall Street. I'm like, wow, you know, he mentioned the name Tulsa. I was like, wait a second, that's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, it was in that one sermon, I had suddenly felt the calling to go home. And I remember him saying, you know, the black excellence, you know, 36 square blocks of promised land, a black Mecca, doctors, lawyers, I mean, everything. And then I remember him talking about how it was destroyed, you know, within 24 hours. And I felt, um, this hole in me like it was like the hole was revealed it was always there I couldn't figure out what it was you know like in your life where you're you're trying to find your purpose absolutely right and so it was like the purpose started to become aligned because I had the pieces I had the information that I needed to realize that hey I came from greatness I don't have to go to you know this church be great. I don't have to, you know, have all of these new people come into my life to help add on to me. Dr. Jeremiah Wright in a in, in one sermon taught me that I came from greatness. And so when I graduated from college, I immediately was like five days, man, I got home. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea about starting the Black Wall Street Times. That wasn't even a thought for me at the time. Hmm. Um, I was a political science major. And I had did gymnastics my whole life. So I was just coaching kids in the suburbs out of all places. So my team was always very white. The hmm. environment was very white, but the money was good enough to like help me get through college and to, you know, pay my bills. So that's what I was doing. Right. But um, I remember like, um, you know, there was a day where uh, I was sitting on the porch with my mom and my aunt. My aunt was like, hey, you need to come down to, to Sankofa and, and come work for us because we need more teachers. And I was like, Sankofa? Hmm. Like, you know, Deborah Brown of Sankofa? I didn't know. That, like, I, I like kids. I've been working with kids for, for years. And she's like, yeah, you need to, we need more Black teachers. And so um, I decided to go ahead and just apply, but I wanted to be an assistant teacher, a teacher's assistant. I didn't want to, like, you know, be a fool. I didn't want to get all the way in there. Yeah, you just want to put your foot in the water. Yeah, just put, just dip a toe in there and yeah. you know, on in. And so uh, I remember um, the uh, one of the superintendents of the schools, or actually, I think he was like one of the, uh, I can't remember his position. But anyways, I interviewed with him and uh, he was like, oh no, we need you to be a teacher because you have a degree. <laughs> we need you to teach. And you've been working with kids all, you know, all of these years. So you're like the perfect person to teach. Um, and so I started teaching. Um, I got trained under uh, Deborah Brown and her daughter, phenomenal educators. Uh, learned how to uh, teach the Marva Collins style uh, method of teaching, hmm. which is perfect for black kids. Hmm. And let me tell you how perfect the school is. Like their 
their the sister school is Deborah Brown Community School. They earn top scores on the state exams every single year. And I'm like, how is this? This is an all black school, black teachers. All of the teachers live in the community. Everyone knows everybody. And when I stepped in there, they already knew who I was. Hmm. This is before I started the Black Wall Street Times, but they knew who I was because of my last name. Because that's how, you know, it felt like Greenwood. Hmm. It, did. it wasn't Tulsa Public Schools. It was Greenwood in the sense that our families faded back to, from generation to generation to generation. So people who uh, were picking up their kids, grandparents would say, oh, I knew your parents. I grew up with them. Or I knew your, grand, your great-grandparents. And, you know, it was a sense of home and culture, you know, like a sense of belonging. But it was more than just a job. You know, I was teaching my community for real. Um, and I remember, you know, walking into Sankofa for the first time and I had chills because I had never seen love like how that woman made that school, Deborah Brown. The way she made that school, uh, the first picture I saw on the wall was Barack Obama. And then the walls are literally, they're littered with black excellence. The walls are red, the lockers are red, black and green. My room was green, the teachers next to me was yellow. Like it was just full African pride that, I mean, you feel the love permeating off the walls. And so the kids were, you know, they knew that they were loved because of the way the school was designed. Um, and so my, my, my aunt, she worked in a cafeteria. And so everybody just, it was still the same thing. Mr. Miller was the math teacher. Uh, Keith Miller, the late uh, Keith Miller seniors, uh, one that, who just passed that was over 100 black men. He was the math teacher. And so like we would trade our kids out and I would teach them history and English. And man, it was just, I really do miss teaching full time. I remember going home and I know I'm long winded, but. No, that's a, good. That's good. I remember, um, I remember I got off one day and I had to go from, I was still coaching gymnastics at the time. And so I remember leaving the school, this is an all black school and it is a title one school. So a lot of the kids are on free and reduced lunch. I remember leaving the school, driving 22 minutes south into Jinx because that's where I was teaching at the time, coaching gymnastics at the time. And it's like my world went from all black. It went from community and warmth and love to this white world. Not that there's anything wrong with the white world, but I'm just saying like, there was a huge difference. Even I, I felt the difference in culture. I felt the difference in how I was supposed to act, you know, like the cross culture, uh, you know, crisscrossing in different settings. I had to get my act together because I was moving into another space. Um, I noticed, you know, my, um, you know, my, the way I, I would speak, you know, everything, everything changed. Um, even my behavior coming into, into that white space and, it was just like a culture shock to me every single day. And I'm like, man, you know, like something's got to change. Like here I have my community, but we don't have that much, but we have everything. And then I go out there and I just, it was just a completely different world to be out there like that in that, in that space. So I eventually stopped working at the gymnastics school and I started working at the school full time, 100% committing to my community. Um, it was the best decision I ever made. And it was under that decision, you know, that I, that I had made space mm -hmm. to start the 
Black Wall Street Times without even realizing. What was the motivating factor when you were like, I can do the Black Wall Street Times full time? Yeah. So before I got to full time, <laughs> right? Like, so I had started the Black Wall Street Times with on my on a teacher budget. I was like, I'm gonna build this website, see if I can get a few folks to write for free. Cause I was on a teacher budget. I didn't have any money at the time to, to get folks to write. But you know, another reason why I started it was because um, like there was just a lack of representation in the media and the local media here in Tulsa. Um, we had black folks that were, you know, on camera and, and writing and in different spaces, but not like we probably should. Like there was still, you could tell that they were still under a control of, of, of you know, a white thumb or a white surveillance. Mm. So they weren't able to exercise how they were feeling about, you know, different projects or projects that they wanted to go investigate. They couldn't, you know, because they had to get approval. Um, and I also noticed that, like, you know, with the Oklahoma Eagle, whose shoulders we stand on, um, you know, they weren't really very vocal or they didn't have a big presence in social media at the time. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, I noticed that that wasn't a big thing, you know, for them. And I said, hey, well, I probably could fill the gap. And I did go to the Oklahoma Eagle to try to get a job there, but I think Fred was just, wasn't feeling me at the time. And I was a crappy writer too. So he probably saw my stuff and was like, I ain't got time to edit this kid's stuff. <laughs> How did you know you were a crappy writer? I mean, that's just what I, that's just what I assessed. I, I, I mean, <laughs> just assuming that he thought my stuff wasn't good because he didn't publish any of it. Well, I guess maybe a better question is, how did you know for yourself that you were walking to your purpose and becoming a better writer? You know, the thing was, is like, I knew that I wanted to write. Um, and I knew that I didn't have to necessarily be, you know, the best one. And I think like, I just had to be my own personal best. And I, I would accredit that like characteristic to, you know, doing gymnastics for all of those years. You know, you can't win every competition. You just go out there, you do your best. And if you mess up, you just mess up and you just try to correct it the next time. And so, um, you know, I figured that's how it was going to be. I was going to write how I felt about things. Um, I was going to investigate what I wanted to and put it out there. And uh, if someone thought that it was good, you know, it was good. And if they saw a typo or something, they would just say, yo, I see this typo. Go in there and fix it. It's digital. You can fix it like that. Um, and so over the years, it just, I got refined i got more serious um but i would say like the the main in, there was an inflection point that happened uh terrence pritchard he had died and he was murdered in 2016 and i started building the website in december for the black wall street times and so i started publishing in february 2017 it's like right around the time when trump was sworn in there was always something to write about <laughs> about trump and you know his war on crime or, uh, you know, law and order presidency. So there was always something, you know, something to write about him. Um, and so politically, that's where I would, I would focus on the politics because it was my major in school, was political science. And so, um, but once we got to the Betty Shelby trial, the police officer who murdered Terrence Crutcher, um, I was watching on the news I read in the paper what was going on and I noticed that it seemed like Terrence Crutcher was on trial. But Terrence Crutcher was the murdered victim, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The ground, like how could he be on trial? And there was no gun. His hands were up when he got shot. We all saw the video. Um, and so it disturbed me. And so I would, 
uh, I asked uh, my prince, asked the principal of the school, I was like, hey, <laughs> can I get off, you know, to go attend some of these hearings? And so he said, yes, like, there's one thing about my, about North Tulsa or like the black community here. Like if you're really from this community, like blood, like down to the roots. And I said, we've already adopted you. Like there's a few people that adopt in, but that's very rare that that happens because sure. a lot of black people they'll come to Tulsa and they'll say, oh my gosh, that black community, they're very like territorial and they don't let nobody in. And it's true. As if they don't know the, the history. <laughs> yeah. We want to preserve our history and protect our, our stories um, especially the oral ones, right? We don't want any of that to get, um, you know, misinterpreted. Uh, right. I remember, you know, going into the trial, sitting down and just listening to the case, listening to the, to the lawyers um, argue about, you know, different, different things that they had witnessed or, or that they had heard about, this, about the, uh, the incident. And they were just pointing at Terrence like, oh, he had drugs in his system. He was this, he got arrested. None of that had anything to do with his death. And I saw a black man on trial. I saw a black man that had already been lynched mm. because it was a mob. That's what a lynching is. A lynching, a terror lynching is when a mob of people are pursuing you. They pursued him in a helicopter. The person that was flying the helicopter said, you, uh, he looks like a big, bad dude. And so that was internalized by the police officers that were on the ground, that this was a big, bad dude and that they should fear him. Nevertheless, they didn't find any guns. They didn't find any weapons. His wallet was on the dashboard, you know, and they killed him. And then they just let him lay there and we saw it and it terrorized the community. That day, my community, our community changed forever when we saw that, when we saw him die. Because people knew him, you know, like people in my family knew him um, and knew his family and his sister and his parents. My, uh, his, grand, or his parents were, uh, you know, they were musicians and my grandfather was a musician. So they all knew each other. And so I went back, finished the day at school, went home and I wrote a piece talking about like who's on trial. And then after that, man, everything just started blowing up on the Black Wall Street Times. Like I remember I was in class the next day, Dr. Crutcher called me out of nowhere. Like it was the principal came running, in a, uh, running into my classroom. And he said, uh, Mr. Frank, they need you at the courthouse. Man, the principal took over my class and I went to the courthouse. And then the next thing you know, I was speaking in front of like national media. Dr. Crutcher was like, I need you to speak in front of these national media and tell them what you saw. You know, that they're trying to make my brother seem like he's the one that's on trial. I mean, it was like, it was, it was terrifying for me. Yeah. I don't like the pub. I've done a TED talk. I've done all these things now. Like now I'm kind of comfortable, but at the time I was terrified. <laughs> like I felt the heat from the cameras and the light. <laughs> you know? And I knew that this was a, the whole nation was gonna listen to me speak about this man who was underground and yet on trial. You know, so that's when things really started changing for us. We became very social justice focused. More people started to kind of tune in to the Black Wall Street Times. And now, you know, we had a million people visit us just last month alone. It's insane. Congratulations on that, too. Uh, I know it's been a, it's been a grind, but I, but I, I want to I want to make sure I, I give space for this, this this story because it's important. You're at the trial. You're just about to start the Black Wall Street Times. 
just talk about the emotions that you had during that that space, but also talk about how you you found an outlet to really convey like the things that you were were experiencing or wrestling with, like because I think that's important. Like I don't think the part of this is to humanize people's experiences, and I think although they know you as Nehemiah Frank, the founder and editor in chief of Black Wall Street Times, also just want to pull back the layer, just talk about Nehemiah, for example, for, 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 for a little bit. Just talk about your emotions of opening your laptop or writing on a piece of paper and just, just talk about the emotions of you, like really trying to like find the language to tell like what you're experiencing, what where your, where your fingers shaking, where your mind spinning, did you have to get up and and like take breaks, like what was that process for you? Cause I mean, we're talking about finally wrapping the creative process of putting this album together, but like, I wanna talk about your creative process of just wrestling with your emotions and trying to really write a piece, not only for you, but for your community to heal. So just, just kind of talk about those, those emotions. I would say like during the trial, like it was definitely a different emotion that I had never felt. Like a sense of responsibility, yet a sense of fear because, um, I mean, we know what happened in 1921. And a lot of people can say, oh, well, these, these Black people are so dramatic here in Tulsa, you know, when it comes to things happening in their community. But I'm like, when we saw the Capitol riot on the 6th, you know, we saw that mob on January 6th, like nobody in Tulsa like flinched. We were like, oh yeah, sure, of course that can happen. I mean, look what happened here. Um, and so writing, you know, writing that was, it, it, I had a lot of mixed emotions. Some of it was pain because I knew that my community was under attack again. Um, I knew that someone, um, and at the time I didn't know Dr. Crutcher, like at the level that I know her now. Um, but I knew that she was my cousin's line sister. And so to me, that meant something. You know, I had a sense of uh, responsibility to try to help her the best way that I could. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, and I would say like, I don't know if you guys know, but we're currently working on the Greenwood uh, 100, which is a magazine to commemorate the centennial. Thank you for taking one of my questions. It's all good. <laughs> it's all about like Greenwood 100 is from the community. Yeah. You know, this is not from, you know, folks that are not from here. This is from people who, you know, the main meat of it is written by people who are on, uh, you know, on the ground. Myself, I have a very interesting piece that will come out. I spoke to MSNBC and NBC Universal a little bit about it. So they're excited, you know, for the release of this magazine and the information that's going to come out. I like to tell people it's our own version of the 1619 project, literally from 1619 all the way to 2021. Um, yeah, so you know, it'll be really interesting, but I would say like writing the Greenwood 100 was painful. Um, doing the research was painful because I'm a part of the story. I'm listing the names of my ancestors who were running for their lives wondering if they were going to see each other because the women were separated from the men because the men were in the concentration camps. You know, wondering if they experienced physical abuse 
You know, I'm sure they saw black folks being dragged in the streets behind trucks. You know, they saw their, they came back to their homes and businesses and everything was gone. So writing that, and that's in my DNA, right? Like my DNA experienced the 1921 massacre. And I don't think that people quite understand like how, to, how that links, you know what I mean? So writing that, writing from a place of trauma, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Did you find yourself undoing any of the trauma that you were researching or, or writing about? Like, was there ever a point in it where, although it was painful, that it, it turned into something else? I think that when this magazine is done, that I will feel the burden lifted off of me. That's what I'm anticipating. And I know that that's gonna happen because when I spoke to one of the uh, directors from NBC um, and I had asked them, you know, to do a favor for me and they did it. And so, and you know, when I found out about it, I was like literally jumping for joy because I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is a, a little chip of, you know, a, a, a chip at the, uh, at, at white supremacy. Uh, the highest level, I'm chipping away at it in a in a significant way, um, and so you know that's that. I think that once the magazine comes out, the full stories, I think that will help liberate me um, and free some of our ancestors. Yeah, I, I actually my next question was just to talk about the ancestors because you know I've I've said on many occasions how they come and visit me. And, and typically they visit me in ways where they're just, it feels like accountability, just in a different way. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, and, and I'm making an assumption, have the ancestors came to see you? And what have been those conversations, what have those conversations been like um, if they have came to visit you or to talk to you or things like that? I definitely believe they're with me. Um, I don't think that I would be so passionate about the work and about justice, you know, if they weren't with me constantly cheering me on. So without a doubt, I mean, like when I walked through Greenwood today and Greenwood is completely gentrified, I don't care what folks say, it's gone, mm. it's gone. You know, some folks were intentional about wiping Greenwood out and some folks were un unintentional. Mm. Didn't, you know, they were ignorant to the history, you know, and I can't hate on them for that, but you know, Greenwood is gone, it's, it's nothing what it was you know, when my, uh, my uh, older aunts and uncles and grandparents uh, were there and experiencing it. Who is to blame for Greenwood being not what Greenwood is? Obviously we know about the Bob, but I'm talking about for those who hold positions of power today, who are those folks who will be held accountable, whether directly from us as descendants or just indirectly as our ancestors, like who is, who should be held responsible for not doing what needs to be done for, for Greenwood? So, um, you know, I kind of got into like a heated debate with someone a few days ago about gentrification. The way that I see it is, is that, you know, there, were, there's, there are black folks that are responsible and there are white people that are responsible, right? And a, a, a lot of them are still alive today, walking around, trying to be a part of the centennial events and, you know, smiling, handing over checks and, you know, so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, the Jewish folks, because I know a lot of folks will be like, oh, you know, 
rich Jewish folks, they're the ones that are taking, no. There were Jewish people on Greenwood. I just want to make that clear. They had gross, that was the only place they can go. Because they didn't want them, they didn't want them <laughs> Greenwood trying to, you know, take their stuff either. So like they didn't right. want black people, they didn't want Jewish people. So we were all in the same space. Um, but I would say, look to the Greenwood Chamber. There is, you know, you go back a few decades, right around the time where a lot of the land was sold, hmm. members that were on that Greenwood Chamber were the ones that were signing away the land. You know, I saw a land document uh, for the ballpark, the space for $10. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like how could, why would this land be sold for $10? So money was moving somewhere mm-hmm. at the time. And also I wanna say like downtown Tulsa during the eighties, it was sleepy. It was sleepy in the seventies, it started to go to sleep. And so there were a lot of empty buildings down there. But what ended up happening was that somebody put together a 20 year plan and didn't include the black folks. The people that took the, the that bought the land um, at a at a very low discounted price from the chamber, they already knew what they wanted to do with that land, and they didn't include those black folks. You know, so it really come, it all goes back down to you know white supremacy and making sure little Africa never happens again. Um, that was that was the plan all along was to move the black folks further north on the other side of the hill. So they can't be seen. There's documents that say that even in the Tulsa Chamber uh, 1921 um, text, mm. and they're, they're meaning, they're meaning uh, minutes. So you, you're very familiar with the Justice for Greenwood case, um, you know, the case for reparations. Um, can you just talk about how you feel about the, the possibility of of getting reparations, what that would, or in your eyes, what does reparations look like to you? Um, and then also talk about, you know, we're, we're familiar with the HR Bill 40, HR 40. Um, just talk about from a, a national, but also a local level, how you're feeling about, you know, reparations for Black people, but in particular for, for Tulsa people. Yeah. So shout out to Demario. Mario is actually my cousin. A lot of folks don't know that. Um, a lot of the families are interconnected. The families that have been here for a long time, they're very like closely connected by marriage or you know family affiliations. I am 100% for reparations, without a doubt, especially after the, um, as, once the magazine comes out, folks will know exactly where a lot of us are. Uh, DeMario, attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons, he actually has an essay in Greenwood 100. Okay. I have an essay in Greenwood 100, and our essays are right next to each other for a purpose, for a reason. Um, and I'll say this, like when you think about the history of political families in this country, long dynasty political families, about it. I won't mention any names. I'm sure folks are probably really going to start to wonder what's going to come out in this magazine. But Virginia, Virginia Vanderview and William Clark, my great, uh, my second great grandparents, their parents were slaves. They were enslaved people. They were emancipated. Before uh, they were emancipated, 
they never had a chance to build any wealth for their family. Every, all the wealth that they had was taken from them and given to the, the people that owned them, legally owned them at the time. And so from emancipation to 1921, my family had 56 years of wealth building to do. And then they had it disrupted in 1921. And then after 1921, they continued to see different types of disruptions, redlining, you know, Jim Crow, um, black codes. Like they, they experienced all of those things, to just racial discrimination, systemic racism. And you look at other political families, and I'm trying not to give anything away. Say less, say less. Your family comes here in 1616 hmm. because your family's well documented. Wealthy white folks, they kept their histories very on paper, right out in the open. From 1616 mm. all the way to 1865, you have zero disruptions in your family history. Zero financial disruptions. Maybe somebody dies. That's a natural thing. The wheel gets passed along. Mm -hmm. The wheel gets passed along. All the little Black folks that are, you know... <laughs> Their families are getting split up to different kids. Yep. They never have a chance to build them. Your first disruption is 1865, the Civil War. And you've never had a disruption since 1865. And even during 1865, you're still getting some form of reparations back. You know, like you're, you're still giving, getting a chance. I mean, just think about that. Like, we are old. I, I, wanna, I wanna take another step. I, one, I, I thank you for being a historian, for being just a lover of history, lover of your own history, but just our history, because it's just so important right now, like truly so important. And I'm I'm looking forward to what you're about to present. If it's anything what I, I think it is, I'm so ready for it, so ready for it. It'll be overwhelming. I tell you, when I first started finding the information. When is it coming out again? It's, uh, May 27th. Oh. Oh, that's perfect. That's yeah, perfect. comes out right before everything else happens. Mm. But yeah, like, man, definitely. I don't want to give too much away. How okay? Answer this. How hard has it been holding on to the information that you? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll say like when I first found out, I remember um, I had I got I had to catch a plane. <laughs> So man, I was on the plane like damn near hyperventilating because it was so good. It was so explosive. It's probably going to be the most explosive story during the centennial. Is it like Leroy Chapman explosive or times a thousand, times a million? I would say Leroy Chapman will be very, very proud of what I'm getting ready to put out. That's, that's all I need to know. That's all yeah. I need to know. Let's but let's, let's keep this make sure I get I live <laughs> to put it out. Okay, let's let's talk about your role in 2021 in relation to AJ Smithman and the Tulsa Star. For those who don't know, AJ Smithman was our black voice um, who just really just told it like it was uh, in the early 1900s. And you know, when I when I think about and hear his story and actually meeting one of his his descendants uh, last year. And just understanding the things that he wrote, particularly, you know, in our album, there's a portion that Sterling Matthews is reciting a portion of his poem that he wrote while the massacre was happening. 
Um, and so, you know, every time I just pull back the layers of Smith and Men, I can't negate the fact that we have Nehemiah Frank. And I'm not saying you are the next age. I'm saying you are just part of the lineage of Smith and Men, but you are your own person. Can you just talk about how much of an influence he has been to you just in regards to your responsibility? Like, you know, when you talk about being in the church and hearing pastor talk about Greenwood and you feel like you had this calling and then you're, you're here in this position and then the Betty Shelby case and then everything that's transpired after that, it's just, it's centennial. Just talk about how much an influence and inspiration Smithman is to you and how you're really like leading that torch like for the next 100 years. Just really just talk about how that, how he has impacted your life. Um, I would say like he was able to mobilize black people in a way that like the church, the black churches at the time were able to uh, mobilize um, the civil rights movement, right? The bus boycotts. Um, and so, you know, that's how I see the Black Wall Street Times. I don't know a lot about A.J. Smitherman. I just know that because of his paper, he was able to mobilize Black people. He was able to, he was able to be a, a, a huge influence on politics, even when it came to like how, what white people thought, right? And so when the massacre went down, he was one of the top targets, you know? And I, I feel like that. I feel like I am a target. You know, this Tulsa, folks want to be happy. They want to say, you know, this is a kumbaya moment. Tulsa is reconciling, you know, with, the, with its history. And that is not it because I'm still afraid. I still have a responsibility to protect my community the best way that I know how. And I'm counting down the days, you know, when, you know, somebody throws a rock in the building, you know, through the, through the glass or someone puts a bullet hole through the sign just because it says Black Wall Street. How are you, how are you preparing for that? Or how are you wrestling with, I mean, you said you're afraid, like how are you wrestling with fear in the, in the, in the moment that we're in right now? Yeah, so I think, you know, I want to make sure like, so when I say like fear, and I always go back to like my sports, like gymnastics is like one of the most dangerous sports in the world. Like folks are like, <laughs> and you never walk again. Yeah. And so that's, you know, it's like that fear. I know that I can get hurt <laughs> doing mm. the type of stuff that I'm doing. And so that's the, you know, I have that type of fear, like, you know, someone might do something, and, mm. you know, um, I have anxiety when, whenever I'm in Tulsa working, you know, I have anxiety, um, you know, but I deal with it because I love my people and I care about them and I love our history. And if the ancestors made it through all that they've made it through, you know, I have nothing to fear. Mm. That's, that's, that's a dope answer, dope answer, bro. Um, let's, let's, let's shift gears and let's talk about Fire Little Africa. So just what are your overall thoughts of Fire Little Africa in relation to all the centennial events, organization projects that you've seen good, bad, for the people, not for the people. Like where does Fire Little Africa fit for you? How does it make you feel? Um, and what are you looking forward to in, in relation to Fire Little Africa? Yeah, so I have no problem <laughs> describing that. So Fire in Little Africa is, it is the realest shit because it's right next to the Black Wall Street Times. That is the level of care that I, that I have for Fire in Little Africa. 
um, because it's Greenwood. It's my community, it's my history, it's my legacy, it's our fight and our collective fight. So when I listen, um, you know, to even the artists that are gonna be on this, on this uh, collection, they sound like Greenwood. The messages that they have represents the long history of, of heroes in, in, in my community that have fought to protect the legacy of Black Wall Street and that have fought for Black liberation unapologetically. When you hear the phrase, everything is us, what does that, what does that mean to you? Everything is us is us going down to City Hall and packing 400 bodies in there until they made change happen. Hmm. And that, you know, more than once. Um, it's crowding freeways because we're at the point where we just don't give a damn no more. You know, and they think that these laws that they've passed, they're gonna keep us from shutting, you know, shutting stuff down. You know, they have another thing coming. What are your thoughts of the Centennial Commission? I mean, I think everybody knows where I'm at uh, when it comes to the commission. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. The more and more I think about the commission, the more and more I get to a space where I'm just like, ain't nobody good. Hmm. Because if you were good, you would have got off of the commission. Hmm. And I hate to say that, but I just feel like we're so close to the centennial and bullshit is still taking place. And these commissioners are still on there that shouldn't be on there. There's commissioners that should be on the commission and there are people that should not be on that commission whatsoever. You're a governor of a state and you're gonna sign a bill that makes it legal for, for people to roll over pedestrians because they fear for their lives. I mean, police intentionally or unintentionally shoot black folks because they're afraid of us. Imagine what's gonna happen when, you know, folks are crowded in the street protesting and, you know, a family is just terrified of all of these black people around their cars. They'll have the legal right to roll over them and, you know, get away with murder. And the commissioner that signed that bill into law is the governor, Kevin Stitt. And I just feel like, I mean, you look at G.T. Bynum. G.T. Bynum is on the commission and he always centers himself whenever he goes to commission events, like the great white hope, great white savior, even at 100. He'll be right in the middle of the photo with the, with the shovel, breaking ground, bragging about how his grandfather signed a civil rights bill to uh, integrate Tulsa. Nevertheless, your grandfather was the one who commissioned the freeway to go through the Greenwood district. You know, and let's not talk about his history. We're going to talk about that when the magazine comes out. You know, you have these people that have never even really reconciled with their own histories that are mm -hmm. on the mission, you know, pretending like they care about Black folks. And what they're really hoping is, is that the centennial is a blowover, that it happens so quick. And then once it's done, they don't have to deal with it or be confronted by it anymore. That's what I see with some of these commissioners. E.T. Bynum isn't for reparations. He says it's divisive. Nevertheless, the commission comes out with a statement saying that reparations is old. How does that even make sense? That does not make any sense whatsoever. You have a, a governor who has that bill, 1775, sitting on his desk for three days now, sitting on his desk for three days. And he's a race riot commissioner for the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Commission. Like he's a commissioner on that. Like the, it shouldn't have even had to be a, a thought for him. He should have just knew to veto the bill immediately. Absolutely. Doesn't make any sense. When it's all said and done with the centennial, what's next for Greenwood? 
what's, what's next with Tulsa? What's next for Black people? You know, I want to, you know, have that audacity to believe that good can come after. And, and to be clear, I support the, the museum itself because I think it is a space where people will be educated at, right? And, and folks who have our descendants will be able to come through there and let go. I think that that's what that space will be able to help do. I don't like the name of the museum though. And I've told everyone that I don't like, I don't feel like my community is rising. I feel like we lost the war. You look at the vast bank, 10 stories high, right? There was a black man who bid for that same space who was a developer. He has multi-million dollar properties in Houston, skyscrapers. And he came here to his hometown and tried to, to build a building in that same space and got overlooked. And so it's like, I drive by there, I see you know, the bank, I see the folks in there, I see you know, no black owned businesses at all. White businessmen are walking around with suit and ties in the historic Greenwood district because their jobs are there. Not that they shouldn't, but where the black folks with their suit and ties working, walking through there, you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like the war is, I feel like we lost that war of, of keeping Greenwood. On another tip, what are you, what are you looking most forward to in, in relation to the Centennial events, Legacy Fest, just Juneteenth, like, yeah. or any other events that on the radar, what are you, what are the joyous events that you're, that you're looking for? I'm excited about Legacy Fest because it's being put together by the community, you know, led by the notorious queen, Dr. <laughs> I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, Fire and Little Africa's national debut on a big stage. Uh, we're doing the streaming for it to BET and other uh, networks. Um, and so I'm like, I'm really excited about all of that. I am excited about the museum opening, you know, but I pray that I don't see a commissioner there that has been adversarial to my community because we will protest that ass. A hundred, so I would consider Nehemiah Frank a living ancestor. This is my last question. Consider you a living ancestor, it's two part. What legacy are you leaving presently? What are you leaving right now? What do you hope to leave? And like what in particular to our young, beautiful black babies, beautiful black babies. What do you want them to take away from your story, your legacy, your your fight for justice and equity and reparations? What do you want to say to them in relation to the work that you're doing and the legacy you hope to pass down to them a hundred years later? Right. So the the first part, um, I would say that. The Black Wall Street Times is a legacy that I leave behind. And more importantly, I'm leaving behind information about how we felt a hundred years and how hard we still try to get justice for uh, our community and for our ancestors. Like there, the livings of, there's living people right now alive that experience. It didn't just happen a long time ago if they're still alive. And so that is the legacy that I'm leaving behind is information just like um, uh, A.J. Smitherman, just like Mary uh, E. Jones Parrish left the Tulsa disaster with testimonies, eyewitness accounts of people who experienced the, experienced the massacre. That's information she left for me to be able to see. 
and to be able to now leave behind information for somebody else to see in a hundred years, you know, that we were still fighting and trying. And um, as far as like education, you know, I, I, I want the kids out there, if they hear this sound bite, right? Cause I was cussing earlier. Um, <laughs> you know, sound bite, I would say that, you know, I did not learn to read until I was in the fifth grade. Cause I was moving, my parents were moving around a lot, you know, when I started at Burroughs Elementary School when I was a kid, um, it's it was it was right around the time when they were still trying to desegregate the schools. Imagine that, like they didn't desegregate the schools until the seventies. Here, they had to have U.S. U.S. court martial had to come in and, and make the city desegregate because those of them want to do they didn't want to integrate at all. Um, and so, you know, with that said, like, you know, I didn't learn to read until I was in the fifth grade. I was a horrible student, a horrible student. And it wasn't until like I got around those people at Trinity United Church of Christ, these black, black folks of black excellence everywhere. And they held me accountable and said, you will learn how to write correctly. You will learn how to be a good student. You will learn to, you know, be the president of Phi Theta Kappa. You know, that's what happened to me. And I, mm. Was a kid that did not like it wasn't it didn't seem like it was in the in, in the stars for me to be as successful as I am sure so I'm thankful for you know those those good black folks that reached down and made sure that I did what I needed to do in order to become you know the man that I've become and so for them I pray you know that they'll that they'll get those folks that you know they'll be able to find them and for any black adult, like reach out to a black kid and, you know, be that for them. I, uh, again, I, I just thank you, brother. Um, I truly love you. I probably never said that before, but I wanted to make sure I told you that I truly love you. One, because I feel like black men don't tell each other that as much as we need to, but more than anything, I just, I see you, I see your existence. Um, I see who you are, who you're becoming. I see that you're not, you're not perfect. You don't try to act perfect. And I think that's just the beauty of just us loving each other. And so, you know, I think a lot of times we can get weary, we can get tired, we can get overwhelmed, get anxious, as you said. And I just appreciate that we have a space and an opportunity and a moment and many moments to come we'll be able to really just continue to love on each other. And so you are, you have truly taken what I call an honor responsibility and turned it into, you know, an honor responsibility fused with love and hope. And I just want you to know, Dr. View, Fire Little Africa, we will forever support the Black Wall Street Times um, and whatever you need from us, like we're here um so truly thank you again for being my my uh guest today on the fireside chat with dr view and uh truly everything is us but more than that everything depends on us and so again i just say thank you nehemiah and uh the ancestors are truly proud of what you're doing right now um i cannot wait i cannot wait to read what you've got over there because I know, and it's coming out on the 27th, which is perfect, is, is perfect. So 
I'm just, whatever you need, brother, just let me know. And uh, we're here to support you. Make sure you follow Fire and Little Africa on Spotify. We got tons of playlists to get you up to speed on the catalogs of Fila artists before our album drops this May. And we've also got a playlist featuring the music you hear on our podcast and the town tapes featuring favorite songs of Tulsa's DJs and hip hop heads. So check us out on Spotify today. And remember, everything is us. Hey, yo, it's Doc Free. Just want to let you know that if you love Fire and Little Africa and you want to support the movement, yo, head over to the online store and shop the clothing line. We got hoodies, shirts, hats, and more designed by none other than Trey Daxon of Greenwood Ave. So check out the full line today at fireandlittleafrica.com forward slash shop. And don't forget to post that pic and tag us on your social media, yeah? Everything is us.